Hello, welcome back to Being Black with Camille Smith. Today we are welcoming Frederick Lewis. Frederick actually goes to the University of Houston and he's majoring in technology, leadership, and innovation management. And he currently doesn't know what he wants to do after graduation, but he hopes that whatever he does is meaningful and impactful. Frederick and I actually have a mutual friend and I'm super excited that we actually got to connect because he one of my favorite sustainable like fashion brands Instagram randomly and I texted my friend and was like hey he seems cool I think him and I should be friends and after bugging her to t- finally text him here we are so I'm super excited to talk to him today and without further ado Frederick what does being black mean to you um I think being black is just being human um, cause it was like, it's so funny. My perspective on, the cha- on this question actually changed like all of two days ago when I was having a conversation with my friend, um, because I had like this whole thing. I was like, oh, I'm going to make like this video and it's going to, I'm going to go around and ask you like, what does it being black to them mean? Because it's going to be like all these abstract answers. And then she was like, she brought a really good question. She was like, would you ask a gay person what it's like being gay? No, it's just like the same sex or a white person like being white. It's just being white. So being black, she was like, being black is your identity, but it's not your story. And so when she said that, it really resonated. So like, I guess being black to me is being human enough to recognize that my blackness makes me unique, but it doesn't set me apart from everybody else. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I like that a lot. Um, And do you actually have a first concrete experience of when you realize that black could mean something different to different people. Oh my gosh, yes, okay. And it really sounds so stupid. Like I was like, I'm older, I was like, this is what you were stressing over. But, okay, so like I moved um, from Cyprus, Texas to Pearland, Texas, which is literally just on the other side of Houston from each other. Houston mm-hmm. is really big, so it seems like a whole new area. But, um, so Pearland's like a very predominantly white area. Um, some context, I was the only black person in my class until like fourth grade and I've been there since like first grade. So it took us a minute, but um, I remember that I was going to this new school and I, I realized, I was like, okay, all the people are like white and like, I'm obviously not. So I was really stressing about like how to, this is so dumb, oh my God, how to say the time. Okay, like, you know, like, oh, it's 5.04, it's 4.07. I was like, do white people say, oh, or is that ghetto? Or like, what are they gonna do? And I was like, I literally got older, I looked back and I was like, this is what you decided to stress over. But at the time, it, it was really like, it was really stressing me out because I was like, I don't want to become ghetto or da-da-da. especially when I walk in the class and I was like, there are none of us here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it stressed me more about the time. So I don't even think I said the time out loud until like, I don't know, like October of the school year. It's never said a word. <laughs> it was like, yeah, you just won't know until we get to like the 20s. <laughs> Wait, so how do you say the time like naturally? how everybody else does 407 I just didn't know anybody I thought it was only a black thing said it because I only heard people say minuscule details like that in my house so like things I take is oh wow okay come on self-hatred um like I would take like things like that I would hear in my house and I'd be like okay this is black these people are white this won't work when in reality my house is doing things like like I said human things that people do and everybody says Mm -hmm. but in my head I had already made the connection like Black wouldn't fit into this. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if it's at home, it doesn't go here. 
Yeah. And so I think that was the first time where I was like, okay, maybe I need to do some accommodation or assimilation to better my experience here. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about growing up. So you just said that you moved across Houston from, you said in fourth grade? Yeah, no, I, no, I just realized that was first, uh, the first time I've been a black person. I moved there okay. when I was in first grade. Okay. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, talk about growing up. Okay, cool. So um, when I moved to Pearland, like I said, it was not like barely any of those there mm-hmm. until Hurricane Katrina hit. And then it was a huge influx, but it was still like, you know, like it's not like the like we just disappeared. Mm-hmm. We just have more people that look like me. Um, and I'll never forget my fifth grade teacher. Um, that was the first time. Actually, I can honestly say that's that's probably the teacher that radicalized me because it was the first time I learned about Black history in its rawest form because mm-hmm. I had never known about the Klan. I had never known about, you know, how Lyndon B. Johnson didn't care, all of, you know, up up to that point, I thought Abraham Lincoln was, you know, God, like, thank you for freeing us, all I hail mm-hmm. him, until she was like, she shows a video, and it was of, like, these burning crosses, and, the, and these people on horses riding around, and they were terrorizing people, and I remember asking her, I was like, why are they, why are they doing that, mm-hmm. and she was like, because they can, and because they're, those people are chasing are black. And I was like, if they're Christians, why are they setting the cross on fire? Because, you know, my dad um, used to be a minister. So I've seen, mm-hmm. I've seen crosses all over the place. I probably was wearing a cross around my neck at that time. So I'm like, I'm looking at this thing I'm, I'm wearing and I'm looking at them set it on fire, but instead of doing the name of God. So I was like, that was the first time I was like, some things aren't lining up. Mm-hmm. So what is truth and what did they make relative? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, that experience kind of catapulted the rest of my curiosity. And I think the biggest part that kind of opened my mind was going to the University of Houston, which is literally 25 minutes away from me. But like, it was a culture shock, which is weird. Had like a black person having a culture shock around new black people. And it's like, mm-hmm. what? But it's like, it was completely different. Like, I'm driving there in my own car that my parents bought. And I'm looking at these grown adults getting on a bus. And I'm like, Okay, that doesn't line up. And I'm looking at the state of these high schools and elementary schools versus the state of high school elementary schools where I am. And I'm mm-hmm. like, that, like, it was just things weren't lining up. And I think going to college was what really showed me the privilege that I had and didn't even realize it. Could you think of privilege, think of white. And I'm like, I'm not white, therefore I don't have that. But it's like, no, you have socioeconomic privilege and you need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. And then do you have any advice for your younger self? Oh yeah, my younger self, stop thinking so much. Like, oh my gosh. Like, look, first off, you're not getting lighter. Let's start there, okay? So stop, like, let's stop. Like, like, go ahead and be quiet for me. Like, you're not getting lighter, so let that one go. Two, you're gonna learn to really like your skin. And I promise you, we could start this process like five years sooner, we'd be so much further ahead, but no, you wanted to wait till then. So just be comfortable with every single part of yourself and know that like, you're okay is what I probably, no, not even probably, definitely tell my younger self. Yeah, no, the lighter one, that, that like hit me in the face. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) That hurt me a little bit. Um, But I'm, again, super excited to talk to you because we're going to have a very, very, very good conversation about being Black and unlearning whitewashed history. Um, And I think it's really interesting that you already brought up LBJ because 
And you also mentioned like, oh, like what radicalized you? Because I feel like on like the internet and like TikTok and Twitter, it's like, oh yeah, like what actually radicalized you? And like a lot of people say AP US history. And that's normally my answer as well, because in history classes before, like it was like, oh, like LBJ, like really like cared about the civil rights, like he really passed civil rights act, like all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, like that's dope, like whatever. Right. Like, you actually learn later that like, it, it was it was entirely like a political move. It was not a function of like, he actually cared about black people. Um, right. You have like an instance that you like realized that the history that you were being taught was whitewashed. The first time I think it was a sophomore in high school and Netflix put out this documentary called like the Black Power Mixtape or something like that. And it was talking about the, um, oh my God, is that the title? It doesn't matter. They were talking about um, the Black Panthers and like what they really were. Mm-hmm. and I'm watching them and I'm like okay so these people um gave free breakfast away to inner city children they policed the neighborhoods and they defended themselves against the police okay now what I learned about them is that they were a radical terrorist force in America and a threat to you know our lives that's the first time I made the connection. I was like, they weren't a threat to our lives. They were a threat to white lives. Therefore, since they're the default, they're a threat to our lives. I would have been fine. So I'm just like, that was probably the first time I was like, so what else mm-hmm. in my suburban brain was mm-hmm. twisted to not see myself in history and not see how Black anger is natural? Mm-hmm. So I think that, yeah, I think that'd be like the first thing that really like hit me. Yeah, and I think like, well, first to backtrack a little bit, whitewashed, I, that term in general, at least in my mind, is very much like whoever's in the majority has the power to write history books. That's just plain and simple. Um, mm-hmm. so growing up in the suburbs, also um, suburbs of Philadelphia, like I went to a public school, very, very well funded, and I was a history nerd. Like I loved history. So eventually learning or realizing that all the history and the facts and all this stuff, especially during like the 1960s and the 1970s. And also now that I'm reflecting, it's very interesting that my unit, like my teacher called that like the hell unit. Mm-hmm. A lot is mm-hmm. a lot is happening in my brain. <laughs> um, but like then to find out that like a lot of the stuff that I was forced to consume like through like my public education was whitewashed and was only reflecting one story, like one person. Mm-hmm. And absolutely no shade to my APUS teacher because he considered the hell like period just because he actively tried to highlight every single person's perspective. So like up until <clears throat> and again, like LBJ was dope. Abraham Lincoln was the man. Like it was only MLK. Malcolm X was the worst, like whatever. And then he was like, oh, like, actually, like, I prefer Malcolm X. And I was like, whoa, hold on. Right. <laughs> what is going on here? And then he actually, like, made us read a lot of documentation to prove um, at least his, like, his thoughts on it. And even with MLK, a lot of people always, you know, quote him. That's something else. Does that bother you when people quote him all the time? Oh, my God. I'm so glad you brought that up because, yes. And I mean that in the least disrespectful way possible. Love you, MLK. However, um, what I will say is that there is 
obviously a reason why MLK has a holiday and Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey don't. And it's because, and it's the same reason we learn about Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Dubois. Because the thing they all have in common is that one, they were approved by white people, and two, they were low-key assimilationists. Um, and white people approve of assimilation because that meant, okay, we will make you white. Mm-hmm. But it didn't mean, okay, we'll celebrate your blackness while we adapt you in society. Mm-hmm. So I think, I feel like both MLK and Malcolm X were very misunderstood because they took MLK's stance on nonviolence as submission, when in reality, it was like, no, I'm actually exposing how violent y'all are by not fighting back. Mm-hmm. But they took that as like, he's so peaceful. He didn't even, he didn't hit the white terrorist back. Like, mm-hmm. go, like no, he was not submitting to y'all at all. Mm-hmm. And so like his, and it's funny, I was actually reading a book and it was talking about how like towards the end of his life, he started to actually side more with Malcolm X's point of views. And, but then, he, but then he just died, which is a whole other can of worms. But like, right, exactly. Um, but it's just funny how like, he was, uh, he got the stamp of approval, mm-hmm. therefore we celebrate him. But there were so many other black revolutionaries. Stokely Carmichael was another one. Angela Davis on the FBI's most wanted list on the run for being black. And then represented herself and freed herself. Like, okay, like it doesn't get better than that. But you still tried to villainize her? Mm-hmm. Like it's just stuff like that where I'm just like, you know, there were other ones besides him. And I don't want to say they did more, but they also did extremely remarkable things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. It's definitely important that you mention that because I think MLK, like I like MLK. Like I, I would hope that if right. you know there, I'd be trying to like do the marches. I don't know if I would, you know, just really have the discipline to not fight back if somebody like hit me or a dog bit me or whatever. Right. Really, I would like hope, you know, I could be with like the movement. But I do think that there is something to be said about a lot of white people actively always quoting him and I distinctly remember in like senior year of high school, it just irritated me so much that every time someone would say an MLK quote, they're like, oh, like, I love MLK, da, da, da. I'm like, but y'all killed him. Like he was assassinated. No, like please say it louder. And then it, and then it just gets quiet <laughs> because like mm-hmm. people hated him, like very much so. And like, I think something that a lot of people don't realize, a lot of my white friends don't realize is like, they'll always talk about MLK and like, da, 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 he was so great, so peaceful, like whatever the case may be. But did your parents feel that way? Because he he's not, he wouldn't have been that old. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. I just feel like there's like this cognitive dissonance because also history books actively try to make these things seem so far away. When realistically, a lot of our parents, a lot of our guardians, aunts, uncles, whoever, grandparents were alive during that time period. So like mm-hmm. thinking about these conversations about how like, oh, come so far and the last racist person died when the civil rights act was passed and like (laughs) you know anymore but it's like okay like you're gonna post that mlk quote today you're gonna feel good about it it's gonna be great but then we're not gonna talk about how he was killed you're not gonna talk about it tomorrow the next day the next day and year you're gonna post that same quote like it's also the same quote it's the same quote this cannot drive out darkness only like can do that that's, that's what it is hate cannot drive out hate only love can do that thank you okay that's real like and it was like it's a, and it's a wonderful quote it really yeah. is like i love it um 
but he also says some kind of radical things that y'all just are like, we'll sweep that one under the rug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he, you know, he also says some other stuff, but mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, but do you think, what do you think having a whitewashed or learning a whitewashed history as a black child can do to us and to our community as a whole? Um, it, oof, wow, okay, multifaceted question. Um, where am I gonna start with this? Slavery, outside of slavery. Okay, so because as much as everyone's like, stop bringing slavery and everything, I'm like, it just did so much. Mm-hmm. But like, um, I had made, wait, you, I think you was, I think you mentioned a video at the beginning, the one I made about um, food deserts. And mm-hmm. I had to make a follow-up video because all the um, random economists or self-proclaimed economists were like, it's supply and demand, it's not racism. And I was like, let me explain redlining to you. So you can see how, even though maybe they're in their brain, they were like, I'm not actively being racist, but the system that they're benefiting off of by planning the business there is extremely racist because redlining did not allow black people into certain areas. So if you all congregate into an area, it brings on crime. So obviously the area's gonna have a high crime rate. And then when you over-police an area with high crime rate, you're gonna have another statistic of having more black people being incarcerated. And then fast forward to the eighties where they intentionally went and started incarcerating more black people. They're like, ah, they're bad, they're bad. And then when you see that um, these poor people prefer cheaper food and mm-hmm. they prefer alcohol and things like that, you're like, ah, see, and they don't do anything to help themselves. If you intentionally place things there and establish a system that it just at this time being cyclic and at this time it just being repeated over and over and over again to the point where we forget the root of it, you're still wrong. Like, yeah, sure, supply and demand. But if the demand was only created because of racism, you're only mm-hmm. supplying a racist system and you need to be checked. <laughs> so that's how I feel about that. Like that just made me so happy but it's really unfortunate because like for me for example like I grew up and I'm sure similar to a lot of other people like I didn't I wanted to be white that was it point blank period mm-hmm. I, I just didn't I wasn't feeling the black thing my skin was like much darker than other people uh-huh. um so then to learn to not see yourself in history except for a few chapters you don't realize you like outright that like that can have like a really, really negative toll on you. But as you grow up, I feel like right now, like even college, like if you decide to go to college, you have the opportunity to go to college, those four years or five years or however however long is kind of when you look back and you're like, Exactly. What? Like there was not one, we never never really learned about Marcus Garvey. Like that was really, Mm -hmm. wasn't really a thing. And again, I had a really close relationship with my APUS teacher. So I was able to ask him those questions when I did additional readings, like he was in the additional readings, he wasn't in the actual core curriculum. Mm -hmm. When you don't see yourself, and I think that just wraps around to, I'm huge on representation. I think representation is so incredibly important. Right. It negatively affects like your, uh, your psyche. And like, as a community, like if you have the opportunity to go to higher education, it's still the same thing. Like you literally have to major in African studies to actually learn about the things that you were supposed to learn when you were in like fifth grade. Exactly. That's an issue. And then you have those people in comments or you have 
um, the people that are like, oh, well, it's not racism, it's actually this. And it's like, do you actually believe that? Or you are just actively trying to avoid the layers that systemic racism has created in literally every single, fe- like every single area within our society, whether that's healthcare, the economy, every- literally everything. <laughs> no, like everything. <laughs> um, so I, I feel like it's just weird to even now reflect on that I really only learned in school one person's perspective and I had to go out of my way even hear the voices of people that looked like like through again outside reading and of course if you had in high or in high school and um college I had a relatively demanding curriculum so like I really had to like actively make time to try and like read books that were by black authors and I'm gonna be honest that was like really freshman year of college that I like, actually started reading books that mm-hmm. were by Black authors. And for me, that's embarrassing looking back now, but like, I didn't really have like a reason to, or I didn't even think that there was a reason to. Exactly. Learning, you know, the whole truth about a topic. And that's just like really weird to think about now. Um, but do you have any advice on how Black people can combat, you know, learning whitewashed history or like books that they can read or podcasts or whatever the case may be okay yes because um like when I was in high school I didn't I was just very angry to be honest I was, I just knew I was mad I was a rebel mm-hmm. without a cause um so it was like I wanted to learn but I didn't know what direction until I until like you know same with you I got to college and realized how big of an issue classism was for me personally. And then the, you know, intersectionality between classism and racism. And I was like, oh, they tie into each other. Let me read more about this because this interests me. Mm-hmm. Anything that you can think of that um, you have a passion for, you can find it in black history. Like even let's take culinary arts, for example. Um, you know, we look at black, <clears throat> Black um, cultures, you know, soul food and stuff like that. And we're like, oh yeah, chitlins, um, neck bones, pork bones, all these other things. And then you go back to the root of those things. And it's like, we had to take the scraps we were given and make them taste good. And then when we did that, all of a sudden, oxtails and chitlins are a delicacy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like that. Or like, look at, hmm, what's another one? Technology, which is, you know, growing crazy fast. We are still today not represented in technology at all, point blank period. The STEM field in general, but like technology, even like little things like facial recognition, we're not in like at all. And don't even start on medical racism because I'm not, but like, but it's like every single thing you can think of, we had a place in it and we were discriminated by it. And so there's something to be learned in everything you can think of. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that you brought up the facial recognition too. Like STEM in general, like I distinctly remember I was on like a ton of diversity, equity, inclusion boards. And mm-hmm. it, I was one of four black people. So like, ah, Camille, like, come and talk about this. And I'm like, sure. You know, like I like, you know, giving my two cents on things. Right. And I had to explain to one of my professors why I like, why it would be important to have diversity, equity, inclusion like course requirements because every other school, so Villanova is a liberal arts school, 
every other college, so the nursing school, um, the liberal arts school, and um, business school are required to take, I think it's two diversity courses. So that could really be anything, like that could be black history, that could be um, Islamic studies, that literally could be anything. Um, and they mm -hmm. have like, I won't say a lot of classes, but like there's a pretty big like variety of classes that you can take. <clears throat> Mm -hmm. but I had to explain to my teacher why it was important for engineering students to be required to take diversity uh, mm -hmm. courses. They're like, oh, like, well, we already have such a packed curriculum. Like, da, da, da. like it's really not like engineering so objective. And I was like, no, it's not. Because things like facial recognition, if you don't have black people or people of color represented within that field that are actually going to be designing that software, Right. have a huge those groups of people have a huge disadvantage when it comes to facial recognition black people always should have a place in all of those areas but we're often always discriminated against so I do think mm -hmm. it's cool that you were able to bring that up that you can find us in every area but we of course always have like those weird endeavors that we have to get past and it's funny it wasn't even intended to be that way they just <laughs> They just wanted so many things for us not to have. So they kept inserting us everywhere in order to stop us from getting in places. But by actively doing that, it's like they unintentionally stamped our face in mm -hmm. every single facet of the operations of not even just this country, just like humanity as a whole. Mm -hmm. Like I'm really into spirituality. And so I think it was last night, night before last night, I was reading this article like the, by the Harvard Gazette, I think that's what it's called. And it was talking about like, African spirituality because my thing I was like okay yes I'm a Christian but am I a Christian because of colonialism or is it just because that's what I was raised in or did I choose this so mm -hmm. I was like let's study what African spirituality is and I found it to be basically all-inclusive mm -hmm. um, where you know they may take things from the Quran from the Torah from the Bible and it's not bound by a specific text and how people were saying, like the professor was saying how he practiced African spirituality, but still identifies as a Christian. And then that had me thinking, and I was like, was that, you know, spiritual practice crushed when colonialism happened? Because if something is so open and subjective, mm -hmm. then it can't be conquered. But when you get something structured, now it can be enclosed and encapsulated into something and easier to close people's minds off to things. And so, you know, just like little things like that, that like I've just been thinking of just by finding things I'm interested in and then seeing like oh my god this relates back to this which caused this and this and this and this and big domino effect you didn't even like know that from the jump mm -hmm. yeah the the intersectionality I think my advice to people in general would be when you get past that initial like oh my gosh I've only learned from one person's perspective or one group mm -hmm. of people's perspective it's gonna be weird and like again I'm still I still have random periods of time that I'm like oh my gosh like I hadn't even thought about that but then when you realize there's a lot of intersections so like like Frederick said like trying to find something that you're specifically interested in like I really am interested in the medical field just as a whole so like um, I was an engineer, but I also was an ethics minor and like my ethics, like thesis, dissertation, whatever you want to call it. Great combination. Was, <laughs> <laughs> um, was on the importance of representation or the ethical implications of representation within clinical trials. Um, mm -hmm. Like as a lot of people know, even with um, 
the current state of like the U.S., like COVID vaccines, were there enough, was there enough representation within those trials? Not really, but um, the importance of including Black people. So that's what I'm interested in, but okay, why aren't Black people included in clinical trials? Like what are all the, you know, the factors that would make that happen? And you can tap into classism, you can tap into status, simply also just not the people that are running the clinical trials, not uh, publicizing the clinical trials in predominantly black areas. Um, and then how does that, you know, transpire? How does that affect a lot of patients that people use aren't tested on black people or they're not within the trials. So then a lot of those medications aren't as effective in black people <laughs> or when they're used on black people. So then you also have a higher mortality rate for black people as well. And then like that becomes a cyclical effect. So it can be very like overwhelming, but mm -hmm. to start, you know, in that smaller area that, okay, I'm interested in representation within clinical trials and then slowly branch out because there are going to be books by black authors and other people of color authors, um, but everything intersects. So right. if that's like makes someone feel better or makes them feel worse, but read a book. <laughs> no, like, read a book. <laughs> Literally read a book. <laughs> Read a book, and you can't read a book. Find a find a blog. They're shorter. Exactly. Can't do that. Blog, find a YouTube video. Podcast. Watch this YouTube video. Mm -hmm. Listen. That to was my podcast. saving grace. Oh my gosh, because <laughs> I don't have the attention span for books or pot or um, what's it called? Books or articles. I was like, I mm -hmm. will watch these little two minute snippets, and mm -hmm. I just built on from there. Yeah. Whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> but Frederick, do you have anything else you want the audience to know? Anything else I want the audience to know? Hmm. Okay, very flat and simple. Be proud of your blackness, but don't make your blackness an exhibit. Like let yourself like let yourself be human without feeling the need to explain your blackness to everybody. Like recognize like you are a human being who just happens to have black skin, and that does come with its own unique experiences. But you know, we're always either martyrized or we're trended in some sort of way or um, or hate it, but never human. So definitely keep that in mind. I like that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for talking with me today, Frederick. I really, really appreciate it. And I think that this episode will be very um, insightful for people, for Black people and non-Black I love this. This is fun. <laughs> Thank you. And hopefully I'll be able to even have you on at another time because Frederick, if follow him on TikTok, I'm going to put all of his like socials in the description box because he's just like a cool person. And I feel like you can learn a lot when he rants on TikTok. So, oh yeah. Shameless plug, shameless plug. Okay. So on TikTok, I have a series um, called things you should learn about in school, but didn't um, there's profanity. So like censor your kids, but um, only because I'm passionate, not just because I like cussing. It just, I'm very unfiltered. Um, but yeah, it goes over the classism and racism of the Salem witch trials, um, the influence of jazz on World War II and black jazz musicians and stuff like that. You know, things we don't think about studying, um, how um, uh, xenophobia against Mexicans in the early 1900s had a direct impact on gas chambers used, you know, during the Holocaust. So, you know, stuff we're not told because it makes America look bad. and. Mm -hmm. um, I don't care. So yeah, <laughs> definitely go follow that. Yes, I will put his TikTok, his Instagram, and anything else that he wants me to put down there. Um, and again, I really, really appreciate you having this conversation with me. I think it's really important. Yeah.
and tune in next time for another Being Black video. Bye. <laughs>